0: God, you are so worthy. Jesus, you have given so much, Lord, and we pray that we can give back at least part. Lord, we pray that this morning, that our, our very presence here is, is a portion of us giving back to you, Lord. Lord, our gifts, our, our, our offerings, our tithes, our, uh, our green beans, Lord, our our devotion, God, and most of all, as we'll see this morning, our obedience to you. Lord, I pray that through our obedience, through our service, Lord, we will worship. We will see our, our calling to be obedient to your call, whatever that may be. Lord, when we said yes, when we, when we accepted that free offer of salvation, we were saying that we were yours to be used as you saw fit. And I pray that our lives would reflect that, that we would be yours and that you would use us, God. Use this church. Use this people. Lord, do great things with us and through us and for us and let us see you work in mighty ways that we've not seen before. Lord, we're praying for revival and we're praying for miracles to be done because you inhabit this place and these people. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to hear your word this morning. Let us not leave here without being changed and without being challenged to be different than we were when we came through the door. We love you and we praise you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Turn to 1 Samuel, chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15. We're going to read the whole chapter. And then look at some particular spots in the chapter. Get some things out of it. This is early in the history of uh, of the kingdom of Israel. We're going to look at Saul. Uh, Samuel plays a role here. Samuel fulfilled a role unlike anybody else had filled. And probably unlike anybody else ever will fill. Except for Jesus. Jesus filled it more more purely, more fully, but Samuel fulfilled a role of, of prophet, uh, the role of priest, and in a lot of instances he acted like a king. He fulfilled that prophet, priest, and kingly role to, to set us up to see Jesus as completely fulfilling that. But Samuel, prior to this, there had been numerous judges. If you read the book of Judges, you you see what that is. That was kind of um, people that led and ruled for a little while, but they were just temporary. Uh, Samson, uh, Deborah, um, Gideon, these were all judges of Israel. Prior to there being a kingdom, they were just kind of a loose federation of tribes at that point. Samuel was the last of these judges. And he fulfilled, like I said, the, the, these earlier judges never fulfilled the role of priest. A lot of them didn't fulfill the role of prophet. They would have other prophets. Um, they would have other priests. But Samuel was unique. And you can go back and you can read his story about how he was called by God when he was uh, under the, the tutelage of, of uh, Eli and how he heard the voice. And it's a great story. And, and here we're getting toward the end of Samuel's life, or at least his uh, the end of his ministry, specifically with Saul. Saul, you remember, was the first king. He was the one that brought these these tribes together. The people of Israel said, "We want a king. We want a king." Samuel, give us a king. And and Samuel told them, "Getting a king is not going to be the the oh joy, happy, happy that you think it's going to be. There are going to be all kinds of issues with a king. Make God your king." And, and go on the way it is. No, oh, no, we want a king like other nations. And so they got their wish, and their first king was Saul. And Saul was a tragic character. Uh, he had some great, great characteristics, some extreme high points, but he could have some extreme low points. And here we're going to read in chapter 15 about one of the lowest points, the the point that lost Saul his kingdom. Now prior to this, I think about two chapters prior in 1 Samuel 13, we see where Saul makes some mistakes that end up costing him, costing his children the dynasty. He would no, his family would no longer be a part of the kingly line of Israel. Someone else would fill that role. His son, Jonathan, who would have been next in line, would not be the king. Chapter 13 lost him that. Chapter 15 is when he's told, not only will your lineage not rule Israel, but you're going to lose the kingship too. It will be taken from your hands. And we'll see that at chapter 15. So this is a tragic story. Saul's a tragic character. Um, Like I said, he had his good points, but they were... Greatly overshadowed, uh, unfortunately, in his life. But let's read chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, uh, and and see where it's going to go. Actually, don't let's do that first. Let's uh, look at some questions uh, first that we want to uh, kind of get in mind before we read it. Before we get into this, there are times when we do, our, when we're doing good things, things that that we uh, know God has told us to do, things that, that we know are are good for the kingdom, are good for the church, are good for our family, good for the, the people of the town. The question we have to ask, though, are they the right things? See, good things aren't always the right things, and if you're hearing hints of about three sermons ago, you should be. Remember we talked about Curly in uh, City Slickers and him saying, There was one thing that was necessary, and we looked at Mary and Martha, and Jesus telling Martha, there's one thing that's necessary, and Mary has chosen it. And that's kind of what we're looking at here, Uh, similarly. are, Are we doing things that are good, or are we doing things that are right? And it doesn't sound like there should be a difference, but there is. See... We look at the, the life of Saul and, and we'll, we'll see that the right thing is always what God has commanded us to do, what God has called us to do. Now there are plenty of things that we can go through the Bible that we know we're supposed to do and, and not supposed to do. But sometimes, as we're going to see, those good things that are our habit, that are our, uh, our uh, personal Choice of, of how to worship, etc., etc., aren't always the best things, and aren't always what God wants from us at the time. So let's uh, read 1 Samuel 15. We're going to see five things. We're going to see the call. We're going to see the disobedience. We're going to see Saul's rationalization. We're going to see the lesson he learns, and we're going to see the result of that, particularly in Saul's life. Verse uh, chapter 15, start at verse one. Samuel told Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. This was in the past. This has happened long before. He just reminded him. Now, listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them kill men and women, children and infants, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Then Saul summoned the troops and counted them at Tela, Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set up an ambush in the Wadi. He, he warned the Kenites, since you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, go on and leave. Go away from the Amalekites or I'll sweep you away with them. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to shoot. Uh, my contacts are twisted, to shoot, which is next to Egypt. He captured Agag, king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, cattle, and fatlings, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, "'May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions.'" Samuel replied, Then what is the sound of sheep and cattle I hear? Saul answered, The troops brought them from the, Amal- the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, Although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what is evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back Agag, king of the Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Then Samuel said, and this is where our whole message turns today, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like sin of, div- of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed the Lord's command in your words. Because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. Now therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, the Eternal One of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not man who changes his mind. Saul said, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I can bow and worship the Lord your God. Then Samuel went back, following Saul, and Saul bowed down to the Lord. Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of Amalek. Agag came to him trembling, for he thought, Certainly the bitterness of death has come. Samuel declared, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among them. Then he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Interesting worship service, by the way. 34, Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Even to the day of his death, Samuel never again visited Saul. Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. Tragic story. Because we're going to see that Saul thought, at least the way he tells it, he was doing good things. But what we're going to see, what what Samuel has told Saul, is that, as the title of the sermon today says, obedience is better than sacrifice. So let's look first at the call that was put on Saul by God. We find that in 1 Samuel 5.3, where Samuel tells him, tells Saul, Speaking for God, now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, children and infants, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, understand that the the reason that God is telling them to do this is that the Amalekites had caused trouble for the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt. They had harassed them, they had fought with them. And at that point, God had declared that they would be destroyed. They would be no more. And here now, he is, God is giving the command to the new king of Israel to go and fulfill that prophecy. Go and kill the Amalekites. And we could step back and say, but wait a minute, that's horrible. God's telling them to kill children and infants. And yes, that, to our ears, it is pretty rough to, to hear that told. But understand, if we look at this from our perspective as uh, uh, those who believe in the the innocence of children, then they are, in in one sense, being spared from becoming like their parents, an enmity before God, uh, being lost and being uh, completely separated from God. The other thing to realize is that This sinfulness, the sinfulness of the current generation, I mean current at this time, generation of Amalekites, goes way back, way back. We can take it all the way back to Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He had his issues just like all of us. But he was a righteous man. For the most part, he tried to raise his boys to be righteous men. Some of them followed, and some of them didn't. And here we have the veering off from following God and following other things. And those parents raised their children to not follow God. And so on and so forth, generation after generation after generation. Until we get to either here, where we're talking about Amalekites, where you have thousands, millions of people who don't know God. Or if you come to today, where we have billions of people that don't have a relationship with their Heavenly Father. It goes back to, over and over and over, parents that did not raise their children right. And so you have generations that do not follow after God. But that does not take away the guilt of of those people today. The Bible tells us they can look at creation. They know that there's a God by the creation, yet they serve the created rather than the Creator. They have chosen to not follow correctly. So we could say it's horrible, but, and, and while it does kind of grade against us a little bit, God had a particular purpose in doing it this way. The, uh, we see with Saul here in the call that Saul was uniquely qualified, uniquely gifted to do this. He was a brilliant uh, battle tactician. He was also uniquely suited to lead. The Bible tells us that he was head and shoulders taller than anybody else around. I mean, he was a striking character. He was a leader of leaders. He uh, was a little shy, though, was was one of his problems. If you go back and read the story, they had to go hunt him down because he was hiding, rather than be a king. But he knew battle. He understood how to do this. God was calling the man who knew how to go and take revenge and judge the Amalekites. God knew what he was doing when he was selected. See here also that the command was very specific. Kill everything. Kill all the people. Kill all the animals. Don't take prisoners. And don't take loot. This this thing, this, this idea is called a, and it's going to sound like I'm clearing my throat, but I'm not. It's called a cherem. Now that's not harem like a whole bunch of women. It's spelled different. Harem would have an A uh, right there where the first E is. This is kerem. This is a ban is the, the definition. God had, play, had banned the Israelites from taking anything from these people. It all belonged to him. This was all about judgment. This was all about you do what I tell you because I'm doing something with this people and you get no glory for it. See, this was all due, just like I said, to the Amalekites' sin years and years and years. And we see that fairly often in the Old Testament. We see, uh, we see this krem idea with Jericho. Jericho was the same way. When the Israelites marched into the land, they were to completely destroy Jericho. Now, Rahab got saved and her family because of their faithfulness. But that was it. Everything else was to be destroyed. Primarily, God told them to completely destroy anybody that was in the promised land. If you were outside of the promised land, they usually just said, kill all the men and the rest of the stuff you can have. This particular place, the Amalekites, was different. It was outside of the land of Israel, outside of the promised land. But because of the sins of the past, they were destroyed. We like to think, we, we wish that the sins of the past don't affect us today, but they do. We live, we're responsible. I'm not taking away anyone's personal responsibility. But we live in the results of the decisions of previous generations. And we very well may and do suffer for those results. And that's what we see here. That's a whole different sermon, so we're not going to get off on that. So that's the call of Saul. I don't think there was anything here in the scripture for him to have said, now, what did God mean exactly? It was clear, it was precise, and it was direct. Then we see uh, Saul's, I'm determined to call him Paul, but this is two different people, I promise. Uh, We see Saul's disobedience. We see it in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 15. He, meaning Saul, captured Agag, king of Amalek, alive. All right, there's the first problem. He captured Agag alive. But he completely destroyed all the rest of of the people with the sword. Verse 9, Saul and the troops, notice it doesn't say the troops, it says Saul and the troops, spared Agag and the best of the sheep, cattle, and fatlings, as well as the young rams, and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Now, hear the way this is being told by the narrator. When we get to Saul, we're going to hear a little different turn on the story. We're going to hear a little more, well, rationalization. But here the narrator gets gets it pretty clear Saul, first of all, spared Agag. Now, that breaks the first rule. He's supposed to kill everybody, men, women, children, and infants. But he spared Agag. For ransom, maybe. Maybe. I don't know who he was going to get ransom from, though, because he just killed everybody else. Maybe to put together some kind of alliance. Maybe it was a political thing. Don't know. It really doesn't matter. He spared someone that he was told not to spare. And then... Saul's going to say later, but scripture says that they both had a a part in it. Um, The men spared the best of the livestock for sacrifice, says Saul. However, if we read it, the tone really implies their motives were not so pure. Um, For one thing, Saul went and built a, a, a monument to himself in Carmel, before he went to Gilgal to worship. Well that tells us something about his motive right there. That tells us that, that his first thought was not, I have completed the command of the Lord, therefore I'm going to worship, but look what great work I did. I'm gonna go put my name on a brass plate and stick it to to this this altar that, that monuments and, and commemorates my work, what I did, my Calling my sacrifice, so to speak. And uh, it really doesn't matter their motives. Okay, maybe the men really were going to sacrifice. Maybe that was the plan all along. Maybe they weren't taking the best and destroying what was worthless for themselves. But understand here at this spot that our motives do not matter. If it's disobedience against God. We can have the purest motives to not do what God tells us to. We can have the purest motives to say, well, maybe God doesn't understand my situation, or you know, but the Bible also says to do this and these other things, so I'm going to do them instead. Motives do not matter. It's disobedience. And lest you think I'm being harsh, Let's move on so we can see that Samuel says the same thing. Uh, the rationalization comes next. 1 Samuel, verses 15, 20 through 21 and 24. We see Saul rationalizing in a, in a couple of different places. Uh, I'm just going to read what's on the screen it, it abbreviates some of the verses, but you get the idea. Saul answered, the troops brought them from the Amalekites. We're talking about the stuff. The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best of the sheep and cattle in order to sacrifice, offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest was destroyed. He says in verse 20, but I did obey the Lord. Notice that in verse 15, he's, it's the troops brought the stuff. They kept, the troops kept the stuff, but they're going to do it to worship. Okay? Verse 20, he says again, but I did obey the Lord. Saul answered, I went on the mission the Lord gave me. Mm -hmm. I brought back Agag. Wait a minute, Saul. What was your mission? I went on the mission of the Lord, but I brought back Agag. Well, then you didn't go on the mission of the Lord. Or you may have gone on the mission, but you didn't do it the way he said. I brought back Agag, king of uh, Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops, they took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. In verse 24, he says, Because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. So, do you hear the, uh, the, the, the finger pointing, the excuse making? Where is Saul the king? Where is Saul the leader saying, Boy, I messed up. You're right. I did not do what I was supposed to do. No, he's blaming everybody but himself. And then when he finally gets around to at least admitting somewhat uh, that, that he did something wrong, his excuse is he, he did most of what he was told. God, I did, I did, I did yeah, some, I did, almost most, yeah, sure, I only did one thing, well, two things, some of the, the stuff, but most almost all the stuff, and everybody but one person I killed. So, God, I did most of what you told me to do. God? Isn't surely isn't that enough? I, I, I knew a guy that at a previous church, and I didn't like much of what he said, um, but he did say this, and I'm sure it wasn't original to him, but it, it stuck with me that he said it. He was the first one that I heard say it. He said, uh, a half-truth is a whole lie. A half-truth is a whole lie. Well, I would say in this situation, the Bible's making clear that half-obedience is disobedience. So if we're only doing part of what God tells us to do, then we're not doing what God told us to do. If we tell our children, or if you told your children, go to your room, clean up your room, and take your bath, Thirty minutes later, they come back. They've cleaned up their room, but they haven't taken their bath. Did they obey? Some. But no, they were disobedient. And that's exactly what Samuel is telling Saul. And Saul's saying, but I was obedient because I did part of it. And then we see, I think, what is equally as, as, as tragic for the king of Israel. He failed to lead and direct his people. He says there in verse 24 that he was more afraid of the people. And he doesn't say it this way, but this is what he means. I was more afraid of the people than I was of God. Well, first of all, I don't believe that anyway. Saul, if we read later and how he uh, treated David... And the people loved David. I mean, they sang songs. Saul has killed his thousands, and David killed his ten thousands, blah, 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 blah. You know, and, and he hated that song for obvious reasons. And he had tried to have David killed. The people loved David. Yet Saul was not concerned about the people. He wasn't concerned that they would turn against him. Uh, various other times we see that Paul, uh, Saul was... Uh, was not concerned about what the people might do. He was the king. He could say, hey, kill that guy. And they would, because he was the king. He had power. He had absolute power. So I don't buy this business that he was scared of the people. But regardless of whether he was scared of the people or not, he had a responsibility to lead his people to do what God had commanded them to do. He couldn't be afraid of losing his job. He couldn't be afraid of the reaction of the people. He had to hear God's voice, in this case through the prophet Samuel, and then lead in the direction that God was calling. Now, at this point in in my study, in my, uh, uh, my own preach to myself, this hits me. All right, because as a pastor, as any pastor knows, there are times when the pastor feels like God is absolutely clear on what a church should do. And it appears just as clear that the church is determined not to do that. Then what does the pastor do? The pastor, as as I've heard others, uh, other professors say, you pray about it. And, and, and you, you pray that God changes the hearts of the, of the people. And absolutely. And I heard one professor tell me, if, if nobody's following you, you're not leading. And he's exactly right. But at some point, leadership has to say, God is commanding, and this is what we have to do. Saul did not do that. Saul didn't stand up and say, we're going to let the chips fall where they may, but God has given this command, so this is what we're going to, what we're going to do. Paul, uh, Saul backed down. He failed as a leader. He failed as a king. He failed as a follower of God because he was disobedient. So he learns this lesson, and he teaches us this lesson. Uh, verses 22 And the first part of 23, Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. See, understand here, offerings are good. And in some cases, offerings are required. The Israelites, the Jews, are told to sacrifice All these different times. For us, offerings are good. Offerings are not required. They're highly encouraged. But there are times when I believe we as church members, and it's not just a belief, it's it's pure knowledge at this point. I know we as church members are very quick to say, oh, the church is doing this, I'll drop a 20, that'll help them do it, but at least I don't have to be involved. My offering is better than my sacrifice of time. Even though God is calling me specifically to be involved in that thing. I'll give a little money to it, and that'll be good enough. I'll tell them I'm praying for it, and that'll be enough. See, we, we, we say that's our sacrifice, when God's calling us to do something else. But it's not just about money. Don't, don't accuse me of that. Let's flip it. There are people who will say, Oh, I will, I will work. I'll be there. I'll do. Sure, I will. Sure, God, I'll do this. But I'm not giving any money to it. I, don't, I can't afford it. I don't have it. I don't want to give it. I got a boat. Or I want a boat. Or whatever it is. I'm not going to give to it. But I'll, I'll be a part and God's saying, that's not what I want. See, there's, no, there's good in, in giving. And there's good in doing. But if God is calling you to give, don't do and think that's good enough. If God is calling you to do, don't give and think that's good enough. Because partial obedience is disobedience. Do what you're called to do. Offerings are good, but that's not the end. Look at some of these words here. Remember, Saul thinks he did enough to to be okay. Samuel says in uh, verse 23, Rebellion is like the sin of divination. Now this word rebellion here is willful disobedience. Samuel is, is getting straight to the point. Saul wasn't thinking, I'm doing, I'm doing good. I did what I was supposed to. No, Samuel is saying, Saul, you were willfully disobedient. You chose to do what you did. Or, in this case, not do what you were told to do. And he equates that to divination. Divination is seeking direction from something other than God. In particular, divination was, you would, uh, you would try to talk to spirits talk to the spirit world. This wasn't particularly idolatry, other gods. This was trying to talk to dead people. And what's interesting is later on, Saul does this. Uh, he, He does get into divination to try to reach Samuel after he dies. But he also says, oh by the way, divination, capital offense. You can be killed for it. He also says that defiance... In this case, it means both arrogance and insubordination. That's the same as idolatry. And this is putting anything in God's place of worship. Also a capital offense. So what Saul thinks is just a minor thing. God, I did most of what you told me. So yeah, no big deal. Samuel says it's the same as divination, idolatry. You put something else in God's place and that's a capital offense. You deserve to die. For what you did is what samuel's saying here because you were given a command and you just did enough you thought to get by you failed that's the lesson obedience is better than sacrifice obedience is better than doing part of what god tells you to do obedience To to exactly the call you're given is better than anything you think makes up for not doing what you were called to do. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And Saul learned his lesson. He learned it the hard way. The result, and we see at the end of 23 and 26 and in 28, because Samuel repeats it three times, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Samuel replied to Saul, this is verse 26. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. In verse 28, Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you. This is the result of choosing the good instead of the great. Instead of the call, see, Saul rejected God's word. Saul rejected a direct command from God, and therefore God rejected him. This might be harsh if this was the first time Saul had done it. We might say, Isn't God a God of grace? Yeah, He is. We can go back two chapters and see where Saul did something very similar. We can see over and over in Saul's life examples of him being less than what God called him to be. So don't think this is just one incident and God just lowered the boom on him and that was it. This was a pattern that Saul lived and this was the result of that pattern. He was rejected as the leader of God's people. Because he chose to be partially obedient. The the other result in, in being rejected as the leader is that he lost the opportunities, the abilities, and the blessings. Again, this should begin to ring some bells for you. So what about us? As a church, as a people, we have a call God has called and will call us as a church and us as individuals to particular purposes, to particular tasks. He's clear about it. See, you know, if you remember we talked about in January, how do we know God's will? And we talked about how we know God's will if, if we are living a life, Psalm 37. If we are living in His presence. If we delight ourselves in the Lord, He'll give us the desires of our heart. What will our desires be? They will be His will because we're living in His presence. We're delighting ourselves in Him. We can be confident. We know that God is clear. We saw with Moses that that God shows us what He's doing, and that's our invitation to join Him. So there is a call on each and every life in this room. There's a call on this church because God is showing us what he's doing and he's saying, join me. This is your invitation. It's to clear and to particular tasks. The question is, what are we going to do? Disobedience comes when we substitute what we're supposed to do with what we're called to do. Remember, Saul was supposed to worship. He was supposed to sacrifice. That was right. For the soldiers to sacrifice was good. They were supposed to do that. But that was not what he was called to do. As a church, there are a lot of things that we can go to the Bible and say... You know, we're supposed to do this. You know, we're supposed to, to, to reach Nixon. But to go to Spain is way too hard. I don't want to do that. But if we're called to go to Spain, then just going to Nixon is not enough. If we're called to go to Nixon, but all we do is go to Spain, going to Spain is not enough we've got to come to Nixon. See, there are good things we can do, but if they get in the way of God's purpose for this church, we're sinning and we're in a disobedience. And we've got to be sure, we've got to be clear on what God's doing, what God is calling us to do. We cannot substitute what we're supposed to do with what we're called to do. And then we rationalize. Invariably, we we rationalize. Rationalizing, we attempt to convince God and ourselves why he was wrong and we're right. God, we can't do X because X takes more people than we have and takes more money than we have and it takes more time than we have. So I know you've called us to do X, but you must have been confused about what church you were calling. You picked up the wrong phone and, and you got Nixon and you meant to get somebody else. You probably were trying to reach San Antonio, but it was just the wrong area coders. I don't know what you were doing. But you not, couldn't be us, God. X is too hard. You remember when you told us in the Bible to do Y? We can do Y. We got Y God, we, we, can, we can handle Y, and we'll do Y, so we're going to do Y, but we can't do X. We rationalize. And then there's a lesson for us if we do. One thing is necessary. To do what we're called to do. Whatever we're called to do, regardless of the difficulty, Regardless of the apparent insanity behind us attempting X, we're called to do it. The one thing that is necessary is to be obedient. Y is not necessary. Why is good. Obedience is necessary. And then if we follow the path of Saul... If we are disobedient, if we rationalize, then we see the result. We lose the ability, we lose the calling, and we lose the blessing. And this is what we talked about two weeks ago with the talents. Maybe it was one week ago. I'm I'm a little lost now. When we talked about the talents, when we have abilities, when we have resources that God's provided and we don't use them, He takes them away. Saul was provided with all the resources he needed. He had 200,000 men. It was no big deal to do exactly what he needed to do with the Amalekites. But he did not do it. And then he lost his kingship. He lost his ability. He lost his calling. And he lost the blessing. If we are determined... To be a church on mission with God, we cannot follow the path of Saul. Once we know the call, then the next thing should not be, as it was with Saul, disobedience. But it should be obedience. Regardless of the cost, regardless of our own belief in the inability to accomplish it, we follow. If not, we end up with the same result that Saul had where we've lost the ability, we've lost our calling, and we've lost our blessing. The first obedience, though, the first obedience as a person is that obedience to Jesus Christ. Have you been obedient? Jesus is called. If you've been in here any Sunday, you've heard the call of Jesus. And if you haven't, you're about to. Jesus wants you. Jesus wants you to follow him, to trust him, to be your savior. What does that mean? ABC. You admit that you're a sinner, that you've broken God's law. Not that you've messed up, not that you've made mistakes. No, you have willfully and defiantly been disobedient to the law that God set forth. He said don't, and you did. He said do, and you didn't. You've broken God's law. You're a sinner. But then you believe. You see, Jesus made a way. You can't be good enough to earn your spot in heaven. So he said, just believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross for your sins. On that cross, he took your sins. That was your cross. That was your punishment. That was your penalty. That was your payment. And he took that on you. And then three days later, he rose from the grave and said, not only did I take your punishment, I just took your death. And guess what? I'm alive. So you will be too. We believe that in our hearts and then see, we confess it. With our mouths, we confess Jesus Christ is Lord. With our actions, by being baptized, we confess that we are followers of Jesus Christ. The baptism doesn't save you. The confession doesn't save you. But if it's not something that you can say, is it really something you believe? And that's where the confession comes in. That's salvation. That's knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And that is the first obedience. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we will, as a church, be obedient. That we will be on mission with you. We will be attentive to when you are calling. And when you call, we go. When you direct, we do. And God, we don't rationalize. We don't disobey. We don't have to learn the lesson the hard way that Saul learned. God, we can read and we can see what the lesson is. So that the result is not that we've lost the ability and the calling and the blessing, Lord, but that we see more ability and we see more calling and we see more blessing because we get to be a part of what you're doing. But as a church, Lord, I pray that we are also intent on making sure as our first calling that people hear of their first opportunity of obedience to to believe in Jesus Christ And Lord, if there's someone here this morning who does not know you as Savior, I pray that today is their day of salvation. That they will trust you. They will admit. They will believe. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they will experience that salvation. Lord, move in our hearts during this time of invitation. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is your decision? What is your... How do you need to be obedient today? you need to accept Christ as your Savior, come forward. Let's talk about it. Fill it out on your connection card, the yellow card in the pew in front of you. If you want to talk about it later, after church, whatever, come talk to me. That's great. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. You want to become a member of First Baptist. That's your next step of obedience, to be involved, to put your name down, to have that accountability. Not just be a a, a come and go, but to be someone that is involved, Come forward, let's talk about that. What ministries, what missions is God calling you to? Do you need to be baptized? You've asked Jesus Christ into your heart before, but you've never been scripturally baptized by immersion as a believer. Let's do that. What is God pressing on your heart? What do you need to do? Let's make those decisions today. Let's stand as Mike and Edda lead us.